Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson and I'll be your host today. Today I'll be speaking to Christopher Agee, whose book, The Streets of San Francisco, Policing and the Creation of a Cosmopolitan Liberal Politics from 1950 to 1972, came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2014. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Christine. Thank you. So I think we'll just start out by having you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became a historian. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. I, uh, well, I'm a U.S. urban historian. I study policing. I uh, did my PhD in the Bay Area, and that's where I started this book. Uh, and I think I became a historian probably for the reasons most people do. I uh, like the research. I like teaching. Um, I liked sort of the investigatory part of it. Um, I liked for instance, on my project, you know, looking at something uh, near where I was living, um, which allowed me to uh, conduct oral histories, allowed me to sort of move beyond the archives uh, into people's homes and see their personal collections. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was sort of how I, I got into history and, and this project in particular. And how did you come to decide to focus on policing in particular? So yeah, it was it was it was not by design. I was in a graduate research seminar, uh, and I knew I wanted to do something local. Uh, and it was on crime. The seminar itself was on crime, uh, and I had heard of a scandal in the 1960s in San Francisco called the Gayola scandal, in which a bunch of patrol officers and sergeants uh, were accused of extorting money uh, from gay bars in the city. Uh, so they were accused of taking gay, oh, sorry, payola, and, and so the, the press kind of dubbed it the gayola scandal. And I figured because there were a lot of, because there was a very long trial revolving around this scandal, I figured there would be a lot of uh, papers and a lot of <laughs> records uh, from the event. And so I sort of set out to research that. And very quickly, uh, I discovered there were no papers left and there were no records that had all been sort of destroyed. Uh, and so that forced me to start going directly into some oral histories. And I started talking with gay bar owners who'd been involved in the scandal and police officers and journalists and, and politicians from the era. Uh, and it was, it was fortuitous because they started telling me a story that was really different than the story I expected to find. Uh, a lot of the literature up until that point had emphasized uh, police chiefs and big raids and sweeps and sort of large police actions. Um, and that was sort of what dominated most of the policing literature and, and certainly the, the literature on uh, police and, and the gay and lesbian community. Uh, but the interviews very quickly 
were telling me a different story. They were, all these people were emphasizing kind of the day-to-day interactions between them and uh, between police and and gay bar owners um, and were emphasizing how little connection patrol officers had on the street to uh, the police chief or or the mayor, uh, that instead uh, police officers were acting with a lot of discretion. Um, And that actually that the, the Gayola scandal was really a scandal revolving around discretion, that, that there was a new reform police chief in, in San Francisco during that period. Uh, and he wanted to, for his own reasons, uh, sort of uh, centralize power within the police department, take away discretion. And then the gay bar owners wanted to be free of, of these payola demands, these extortion demands. Uh, and so it, it had created sort of this strange um, and very temporary alliance this chief and, and these gay bar owners in order to, 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 to get rid of the discretion police officers enjoyed over gay bars. Um, and that, that sort of kicked things off. I then wrote a dissertation and, and, and then that sort of slowly morphed into a book uh, where I was looking at different types of discretion that police were enjoying throughout San Francisco during this period, Chinatown and North Beach, Haight-Ashbury. Uh, the black neighborhoods, uh, the Fillmore and the Hunters Point. I assume we'll talk about those areas later. Uh, and, uh, you know, as with the, the Gayola story, I, I started, I became interested in how um, discretion was really a defining feature of mid-century policing. And thinking about, you know, when we account for discretion, um, when we account for the fact that police officers were acting on their own, weren't, weren't necessarily following um, the, uh, the mandates and rules of, of, their, of their superior officers uh, or, or politicians, how does that change our understanding of politics in the 1950s and 60s, and how does it change our, our understanding of how uh, democracy was working? Okay. So, yeah. So you're telling the story about changes, not just in police discretion, but in kind of larger reform um, and political change of the place of police in San Francisco during this period of time. And so I was wondering if you've already gotten a little bit into this, but if you might talk just a little bit about how policing worked sort of leading into this era of reform. So you've talked a bit about the role of discretion and the role of payola, but I was wondering if you could just... Right. expand on that part a little bit, and then we can talk more about what kinds of changes are coming about. Right, right, right. So, you know, my book, so my book is sort of the main, one of the main takeaways of it is that um, there are these periods in the 20th century where sort of old policing uh, practices and principles are being challenged, police legitimacy is being questioned, uh, and then policing needs to, you know, undergo this period of redemption. They need to sort of reclaim their legitimacy. Um, and this happens, you know, in these sort of oh, oh, episodically throughout the 20th century. And the 1950s and 60s uh, are sort of the biggest challenge uh, to police legitimacy. And that's sort of what my story is about. It's, it's the period where um, policing changes the most, uh, between the mid-19th century and the 1940s, uh, policing had changed uh, very little. Uh, the policing coming out of World War II looked a lot like the policing in the late 19th century. Um, police in most cities had two primary functions. 
Uh, one was to collect graft for the political machine. Uh, and the other function was sort of a broad order maintenance function where they uh, were responsible for policing uh, culture and sexuality and racial boundaries and, and sort of whatnot, sort of a, a wide range of activities. And they did that with these sort of broad uh, status-based uh, charges, uh, charges like vagrancy, which really allowed you to arrest someone for, for nearly anything. Um, they didn't have to commit a crime or, or even be, well, they didn't have to do anything. It was, it was a status-based charge. Uh, and so the, so yeah, so in, in a place like San Francisco, what that meant was that in places like Chinatown, uh, you, you had a police officer, you had a rule in San Francisco, and this, this was typical of other cities, where regular police couldn't go in the neighborhood. And there was sort of a special division in there, and they operated out of a secret hideout and they didn't wear uniforms. They wore these fancy suits that made them look like uh, police detect or, you know, detectives from the movies. Uh, and they would go around sort of, you know, creating their own sort of law. And in North Beach, I tell a story about an officer who walked around North Beach and sort of created his own sort of index card file on, on citizens of the neighborhood. He would stop people on the street and make them tell them his information, or he would walk into their, into their apartments um, and it's sort of every neighborhood sort of has versions of this. So th this is, you know, in African-American neighborhoods, there's sort of this split um, where there's a problem of, of certainly over-policing. There's a lot of brutality, uh, uh, police sort of, you know, uh, uh, storming into people's apartments, you know, beating people around their kitchen table, uh, real sort of intense acts of violence. And there's a lot of under-policing where they just completely remove themselves from a neighborhood, don't respond to uh, violence within the area. Um, and all of this, so all of this is, this is a sort of setting the table then. And then in the 1950s and 60s uh, in San Francisco, but then as I discussed in my book, a lot of other cities as well, San Francisco is, is on the front end of this change, but it really is a national change. You suddenly have this coalescence of you know, my book identifies sort of three major channels that are, they're all coalescing into one big reform movement so that suddenly in the space of 20 years, that system that had existed for the previous hundred sort of gets wiped away uh, and entirely new terms of policing are set. Um, and so, the, you know, my, my book sort of talks about, you know, on the one hand, and this is the part that maybe had been at least recognized before was that you get this whole wave of uh, police reform campaigns coming out from marginalized communities themselves, uh, African-Americans, civil libertarians, political radicals, sexual minorities. They're all sort of encountering uh, and bringing attention to uh, challenging abusive order maintenance policing. Um, but then there's sort of the two elements that my book talks about that, that you know, and I, why I argue that you know, the reforms of the 50s and 60s were so substantial that there's sort of two other changes occurring. One is that uh, in San Francisco and elsewhere, you get the rise of these sort of pro-growth downtown business people who are wresting power from old political machines uh, and trying to get uh, redevelopment monies to sort of remake their downtowns. And they recognize right off the bat that 
police officers are maintaining the old machines that that are sustaining the old machines. The graft that police take is propping up the old the old machines. So the old bosses. So uh, these downtown uh, you know business elites began attacking police graft, uh, and they in the process began discovering discretion uh, and began seeing discretion uh, as a problem. Uh, and of course, these elites don't want to expand civil rights. Uh, they're, they're not interested in uh, changing the boundaries of sexuality or of gender. Um, but their, their challenges to do to discretion sort of produce these unintended uh, consequences. Um, you know, na- namely, they, 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 began, they began sort of bringing in these sort of new as they changed their downtowns, these young white collar people began moving into cities like uh, Chicago and San Francisco and New York and LA uh, and even small, you know, uh, uh, sort of cities in the middle of America, St. Louis and whatnot. Uh, and these white collar people began sort of combining the two messages of the downtown elites and also of the civil rights campaigns. Uh, on the one hand, they began, uh, well, and, and sort of to, to bring the two arguments together, they begin challenging the discretion that police officers use over black people, over gay people, over artists, and begin arguing that, well, that this is unjust, uh, and that really, but they, they go beyond that. They begin, they begin using these discussions of discretion to argue that um, cities should redefine crime. Uh, that crime should not be based around morals. Crime shouldn't be based around sort of understandings of family values, um, but that instead crime should be redefi- redefined around uh, the concept of harm. Uh, and in each of my chapters, I'm showing how uh, these young white-collar downtown people are making sort of bridging alliances with either the Beats or gay bar owners or artists or African-Americans, and with each of them arguing uh, against police discretion and arguing that instead of the police uh, sort of challenging the morals of each of these groups, police should be instead dedicating themselves to uh, uh, policing violence, that violence is the the true threat to the city. Um, So that's sort of, that's what's coalescing during this period. And the second half of the book you know, discusses this, but also begins to make clear um, that there's, there's a big caveat to all of this. Uh, and that's as, as these young liberals begin to redefine uh, crime, redefine crime around harm, uh, they're doing so in very racialized ways. Uh, they are increasingly associating harmless activities with white people. Um, so they see the beats as white, you know, regardless of whether or not they are white. Uh, they see gay and lesbian uh, in bars as, as whites. Uh, they begin seeing artists as whites uh, and defending them on those terms. Meanwhile, they begin seeing African-Americans, well, not begin, but, uh, but sort of drawing a line now where they're, they're pointing to African-Americans as, as pathologically violent, um, that violence is sort of baked into African-American culture uh, and so the, the caveat then that they, they create here is that uh, 
while, you know, crossing gender boundaries or sexual boundaries or uh, for whites is considered harmless, they continue to see these activities as harmful when coming from African-Americans. And as, as we can discuss that, that will affect how they, how they sort of the new direction they point policing in. So you are talking about how there's a large number of alliances coming between people who have been policed through these various discretionary practices, and those folks are coming together with some of the pro-growth advocates. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about how those alliances are being formed and how they're playing out, and perhaps we can talk a bit about the Beats as an example of that. Great. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, the Beats, the beats come... Uh, near the beginning of the book, uh, and they were in the North Beach neighborhood. The beats are, are important in my book because it's really where you start seeing the uh, emergence of these downtown young white liberals. The, the, and the, these, incidentally, I should say, uh, should have said earlier, are, are the cosmopolitan liberals that, that my book is referencing. Um, so so what's happening in, in the beats? So, the, the North Beach um, chapter focuses on a, a few specific um, patrol officers in particular, the uh, patrolman Bigarani, who I mentioned earlier. He's sort of known as the scourge of North Beach um, and, uh, and, and also begins to set up the ways in which uh, the harm principle is being introduced to San Francisco and also the ways in which the harm principle is immediately being racialized. In terms of alliances, I guess what you what you see there is the the beat scene emerges kind of as a cultural phenomenon in, in the mainstream press and the mainstream entertainment, uh, just as uh, the pro growth people are getting power in San Francisco. So in the mid 1950s, the the pro growth downtown business elites uh, they finally win control of City Hall in San Francisco. Uh, the the person carrying the banner for them is uh, Mayor George Christopher, uh, and he immediately begins promising uh, a crackdown on discretion uh, because he associates it with uh, payola, with extortion, with machine. Uh, and the problem that he doesn't anticipate is that uh, the Beats, uh, who are in North Beach, start getting attention, and they are tired of the police repression that they are. Uh, encountering, and they immediately began framing that repression as as a, an act of police discretion. Um, you know, they 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 certainly are talking about their rights, but they're also talking about their abuse in these sort of administrative terms as as a problem of of out of control patrol officers. And this puts Christopher and the downtown elites in a bit of a bind because. They've campaigned on ending discretion, and, and yet this is sort of a discretion they want to protect. They uh, don't, you know, these downtown elites have no interest in the beats. Uh, and so this, and then, then this is then where, where these white-collar professionals, uh, many of whom are, uh, these young people are going to the beats. They're the people in the beat bars. They're the people buying the beat uh, poetry. Uh, they are, uh, in some instances, uh, uh, profiting off of the beats as landlords. Um, 
they began, this is the very beginning of them beginning to, uh, 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 to, to argue, well, wait a second, this discretion is wrong too. Um, and this discretion is wrong uh, because these people are not committing crimes. Uh, that wearing a beard, uh, playing bongo drums on the street, uh, not having a job, uh, these should not be crimes. This isn't what crime is. Uh, and police are uh, threatening us, or well, are endangering our city by policing the beats because there's violence in the city that they aren't policing, uh, that they're instead focused on these harmless activities. Uh, and so that's, that's the kind of alliance, you know, in many instances that I'm talking about. It's not, you know, these aren't alliances in, in a political party. Uh, these aren't alliances in any sort of formal institutional way, but they are um, expressions of support uh, that over the course of my uh, book began manifesting themselves either in new legislation or in, in, in people's elections. Uh, in the Beep case in particular, what you see uh, is uh, out of this idea of the harmless beat, uh, liberals beginning in San Francisco and then organizing throughout the state uh, began to challenge uh, California's vagrancy law, uh, arguing that police are using vagrancy, which is a broad status-based charge, uh, to uh, uh, arrest people who've not committed any crime, uh, much less any uh, sort of harmful activity, and uh, and it's and well, and their campaign is successful. San, uh, California uh, repeals its vagrancy law in, in 1961, making it uh, only the second state in the country to repeal common vagrancy, uh, and. By, uh, well, by 1972, the Supreme Court of the United States is, is voiding uh, vagrancy law. Uh, so you, you, this is sort of the beginning. California sort of on, and San Francisco in particular is on the front end of that process. Uh, and I guess I would just say finally that the beats right off the bat also are useful because they show us many of the limits uh, uh, you know, starting with common vagrancy, California eliminates common vagrancy, but they uh, immediately replace it with uh, a lewd vagrancy code uh, that still uh, target allows police gives police broad discretion over uh, uh, gay and lesbian people. Uh, and so, you know, the, the reforms in this book that I describe are are very incremental. And that's why sort of each chapter is necessary because one campaign begets another campaign. Uh, and then the other, the other point that you see from the North Beach story is that, uh, what, and what I sort of alluded to earlier is that white collar, young white collar people, these cosmopolitan liberals, uh, express support for beats um, and express tolerance of beats as harmless people on the understanding that, the, 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 that they're going to understand Beats as, as, as white. Um, and this is most clear in their, in their support for uh, uh, one Beat in particular, a guy named Bob Kaufman. Uh, Bob Kaufman was an African-American poet, and he was probably the main target of, Bigoran, of Officer Bigorani's you know, violence um, and, you know, and ire. Uh, and their relationship was 
uh, a relationship deeply based around uh, race. Uh, Big Ronnie uh, really uh, said, said repeatedly he didn't want African-Americans in the North Beach neighborhood. Uh, he uh, and, and Kaufman definitely understood uh, that his challenges to police as sort of this um, uh, assertive beat were, were the challenges of, of an African-American man. Um, he understood his challenges to be racial in nature. Uh, but the press really ignored all of their run-ins with one another, and they, there were frequent run, run-ins, and they were often quite violent. Uh, and they only sort of, cosmopolitan liberals only sort of paid any attention and sort of turn, turned towards their relationship when it revolved around Kaufman posting a, a dirty poem about Officer Bigarani in a cafe, and Bigarani came and, and tore it down. And so suddenly the cosmopolitan liberals in the press pay attention because this is a, this is a, a story that they can describe as a censorship story. Uh, they never discuss in the, in the coverage of this that uh, Kaufman is African-American. Uh, and it's, so it's, it's, the, it's the exception that proves the rule that they're, here they're, they're focusing on African-American beats but not discussing race. Uh, and, and, and then there are smaller examples in, in, that are sort of... Uh, you know, the reverse of that, where they would discuss uh, police officers um, violently, um, you know, uh, committing acts of brutality against African-Americans uh, but they would, in North Beach, but they wouldn't discuss it as a beat issue. They would just sort of discuss it as a general citywide uh, race issue. Uh, so you, you start seeing here the ways in which cosmopolitan liberals are teasing apart uh, their attitudes towards uh, harm in African-Americans and harm in whites. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about race. Um, and I have sort of two, two directions that I'm interested in. You can kind of go in the direction you'd like. Um, one is, you know, as the book goes along, you're talking about how the, f- the further you go, these cosmopolitan liberals are aiming for inclusiveness and starts sort of uh, talking in that kind of, of rhetoric while saying, you know, employing this harm principle uh, for policing. And thus racial inclusiveness seems like an obvious possibility, but they have this uncomfortable relationship there. So I'm wondering sort of how that works is one aspect. And right. then the other aspect to, is you mentioned briefly already that black communities in San Francisco, as in many other places, have this sort of um, dual problematic relationship with the police where they're simultaneously over-policed, but also neglected. And that creates particular challenges for residents who are trying to implement some sort of reform. They have sort of two very, very different problems going on at the same time in this problematic Mm -hmm. relationship with the police. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that relationship and then how they're making this argument to be part of this pluralism and how that's going. Right. Okay. Yeah. Great. So, yeah. uh, So the cosmopolitan liberals, they, as they sort of develop as, you know, as a, a group with its own ideology through the course of the book. Um, and, and I should say, uh, you know, that, there, that, that in 1967, there's an election and, and uh, uh, Mayor uh, Joseph Aliotto, or candidate Joseph Aliotto is elected mayor. 
I sort of point to him as, as the first actually sort of cosmopolitan liberal mayor. So it does, there are sort of politicians who then begin to embody this, this mm -hmm. idea. Um, and then in, in respect to the African-American communities, um, I think those two questions are, yeah, they're related. Uh, uh, liberals began separating, well, these cosmopolitan liberals really began separating themselves from earlier generations of liberals uh, and, and conservatives in particular, in that earlier generations had argued that uh, politics needed to be colorblind, um, that you really needed to uh, not evince any sort of racial perspective in uh, in policymaking or in political discourse, uh, and that speaking in racial terms, speaking with racial perspectives, uh, would incite racial violence. And of course, this was uh, a way of uh, denying African Americans uh, and other people of color, uh, although even in San Francisco, African Americans, you know, uh, uh, sort of dominated understandings of uh, white understandings of, of what race meant, um, denied African Americans a voice uh, and allowed whites to speak as as whites, but without uh, addressing that fact. Uh, what the cosmopolitan liberals are doing, their argument is different. Their argument is uh, that we should allow for uh, racial pluralism in politics, uh, that we should allow different racial perspectives to enter political discourse. Uh, but again, it comes with a catch and it's tied to this harm principle. Their assumption is uh, that African-Americans, you know, particularly working class and youth, have a, a dangerous you know, culture, um, but they're but they're thinking that their, their their notion is that by integrating black people into the political process and allowing them to speak with those voices in the process is will be a way of uh, of uh, diffusing uh, sort of the black population um, that the black population can be negotiated with. Uh, and so the way this then begins to play out in my book is that you start getting these uh, in, in neighborhoods where there's where, well, in all neighborhoods, under, in all black neighborhoods, under policing and over policing is a problem. And one way that African-American uh, communities are responding to the pro uh, problem of under policing is by working, creating service agencies that then work with uh, youth, um, particularly youth gang leaders. Uh, and sort of working to negotiate uh, peace treaties amongst them uh, and also working to recruit gang leaders as peacekeepers. Um, and cosmopolitan liberals become really enchanted with this idea, uh, this notion that uh, they can find a few black youth basically to work through uh, and that that will be a way of reducing um, what through the 60s becomes an increasing amount of interneighborhood violence within African-American neighborhoods. Um, that, uh, so, so liberals, they, they, they begin, they, they, they work, they begin, that, that separates them. Cosmopolitan liberals work with these gang leaders. And they also then begin trying to create police reforms 
within the police department that will sort of mimic that model. Uh, they began uh, introducing uh, police community relations units. San Francisco had probably the most, one of the more robust police community relations units in the country. Uh, it would later serve as a model for uh, early forms of community policing a couple decades later. Uh, and um, what was I going to say about, oh, right. So that, uh, and, and the idea is that these police community relations units uh, will learn to, you know, in the, in the rhetoric of the time, uh, will speak the language of the community, will learn how to speak to the community. And essentially, that means, you know, speaking with a, a racial perspective. Um, so liberals are very progressive on, well, liberals are trying to be progressive on this end and, and, and are offering African-Americans new avenues into uh, politics, although in very circumscribed ways, only insofar as African-Americans can promise to sort of negotiate and help keep the peace. Liberal, the cosmopolitan liberals are much less successful and have much fewer answers for over-policing. Um, and this really comes down to uh, a lack of commitment to that, you know, solving that problem. Um, they're, they're, they, throughout the book, they continue uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the white, white politicians, liberal, uh, liberals in particular, continue to see African-Americans as a, as a violent community and are really um, uh, uh, hesitant to do much to the police that will rein in brutality. Um, and, but they're also facing, I mean, in addition to their own sort of hesitance, they're also facing kind of a, a state building problem, uh, with things like the police community relations unit. It's much easier. It's much easier to handle, uh, under policing because you can simply build more policing. You can build, you know, better policing. You can build more responsible policing. You can build new programs. Uh, but in terms of over policing, there's, that's a problem of reining these agents of the state in. Uh, and that's much more complicated in terms of just how the police department works. Police officers are out on the street. Uh, they're not supervised. It's hard to keep constant supervision over them. Uh, there's, there's, there's just, they're, they're running into, uh, well, administrative problems, even, even when they want to in terms of, reigning in the, the over-policing. And so this is, this is then um, something African-Americans quickly, begin, well, by the end of the book, are, are very much catching on to uh, and are setting up uh, one of the, the problems that, that, that's now at the center of our politics sort of for the 30 years after this story, how, 40 years after this story, how to, um, how to rein in well, sorry, how, how, how to address under-policing in ways that don't simply exacerbate the over-policing. Mm -hmm. So on that note, one of the things you talk about specifically with Alioto is that he is simultaneously promising um, to create this kind of inclusiveness and also provide tougher law enforcement, which is right. similarly difficult. Um, and so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about sort of how that... Um, how that promise works or, or how that's supposed to work as well as how the difficulty or the difficulties that do come up. 
Yeah, well, so he he Alioto assumes that. Listen, if I allow all of this pluralism in the city, cultural, sexual, sexual, racial, and I allow all voices into city hall, and we have a great big debate. You know, he's big. He was very into sort of the the idea of uh, <laughs> robust debate sort of under the dome of city hall. That. City, that, that City Hall will then be able to produce policies um, that, are, that serve the common good, right? That, uh, which, he, which he's assuming will, will uh, fit with the harm principle. And that the city, in terms of policing, will be able to set policies that everyone can agree upon uh, in which uh, police, well, that City Hall will then direct police to uh, allow harmless activities to um, um, continue uh, and instead focus itself on harmful activities. And so his, his, his belief is that he can uh, eliminate discretion, right? Um, and Alioto begins uh, introducing, well, on the one hand, he's sort of He's uh, promoting the, the community relations unit because he likes he likes the notion of it sort of working cooperatively with our you know with the different marginalized communities, uh, but he also sort of counterintuitively introduces a tax squad, uh, and for Alioto and his supporters this this paramilitary tactical squad is democratic, is a liberal instrument. He believes that this tax squad, because it, um, it, it, uh, well, they, they, they all have sort of this paramilitary training in order to get into it. They all march around in lockstep formation. He thinks that that this tax squad will remain um, obedient to civil uh, to city hall, uh, and that city hall, which is democratically designing policies, will be able then to direct this tax squad against uh, acts of violence um, and uh, act, uh, sort of violence that threatens the entire city. So that's, that's sort of his, his, his belief on how, how he can be both democratic and sort of hard-nosed. Uh, and the problem that quickly develops is that the tax squad is, is not necessarily under his command. Um, and that there are some high-profile events that the tax squad uh, polices, but there's a lot of days in between uh, where the tax squad just sort of roams around the city uh, committing sort of very unprofessional acts of violence. Uh, and also the, t- the tax squad began stoking um, a new assertiveness amongst rank-and-file officers. It's it's very inspiring. They, they kind of, they like this, this much more martial approach to policing. It gives, and, and the tax squad begins to breed a new subculture uh, within the police department, and particularly amongst the rank and file uh, that do not see themselves as uh, necessarily, uh, well, yeah, yeah, do not see themselves as, uh, Liberals, <laughs> to say the least, uh, or or as uh, part of Alioto's sort of reliable coalition, they see themselves as their own voice, 
Uh, and so what I get at the end of the book is that you've got uh, Alioto believing that he can sort of create this much larger martial uh, and obedient police department, but what he in fact produces is a police department with uh, what, what, what grows into a, a very sort of strong police union movement. Uh, and by the end of the book, under his administration, uh, the police union emerges from this story as, as a new and very powerful uh, police player in, in San Francisco. And that's a, that's a story that uh, is typical of, of, of the late 60s and early 70s in a lot of cities in America. So could you talk a little bit more about how the police themselves are reacting to this? So you have lots of different players involved and the police are sort of being expected to carry out these new ideas and sort of make all sorts of adjustments and uh, see some changes in their discretion and things of that nature. So how are they actually reacting and understanding uh, these, these reforms? Right. Well, I, and I, I think, yeah, the, the most important thing that I, that I got out of sort of studying the police, you know, and taking them on their own terms through this book is that in each chapter, um, there's a there's a debate outside of city hall, or, or sorry, in city hall and out in the city, outside of the police department. Is what I meant to say uh, about you know what what police should be doing. And in each of those chapters, there are then factions that are developing within the police department, um, and each are aligning themselves with some sort of outside sponsor and trying to leverage you know, whatever political movement that is or political reaction that is uh, to advance themselves and to increase their own power. And all of this is having a, the effect of that all of these, you know, as, as politics sort of gets confusing and fractures within San Francisco, uh, the, the sort of general effect is that the police department is growing. Um, because each of these factions and each of these chapters is finding some sort of sponsor, or patron outside it. That patron or sponsor is is advocating a growth uh, of whatever section or niche of the police department there, and they think is going to solve their problem. Uh, and so you just you just sort of get a generalized expansion of power. Uh, but there is one sort of main political trajectory in the department and uh, during this period. And that's a, a, a shift in power from, so there are, there are sort of two shifts in power over the course of the book. The first is when the redevelopment advocates come to power and they want to get rid of payola and, and, and get rid of discretion. Power is shifted from district station captains to the police chief. The 50s and 60s are this era of of police chiefs who are, are these are these supposed reformers and uh, and and they're granted great power and and they have great power in city hall. Uh, they're they're seen as the voice of the police. Uh, but during the latter half of the book, uh, and particularly in, you know in relationship to to what I was just talking about with the tax squad, uh, you get a younger generation of police officers. Um, who are uh, first of all, they're no longer they're no longer uh, they no longer have a uh, payola-based relationship with City Hall. In other words, uh, they no longer um, are looking to City Hall 
sponsors for promotion based on how much uh, payola they bring in. That's been wiped out from the pre- previous era. Uh, and, you know, payola had been certainly extortionary for the citizens, but it had been a means of controlling the police. Um, police needed their sponsors uh, and needed to sort of keep serving them. Now that relationship is broken. Uh, and police, particularly this younger generation by the late 60s and early 70s, is feeling much more uh, assertive and emboldened and, and independent. Uh, and, and so you you start seeing you start seeing unionizing not only in San Francisco but but elsewhere, uh, and I would say what's unique about San Francisco is that San Francisco's police union is particularly savvy at understanding that if they dial down the public rhetoric about the public anti-gay rhetoric and anti-hippie rhetoric and anti-African American rhetoric, that if they dial all that down. Um, liberals, you know, and instead sort of accept, if police instead accept pluralism in City Hall, if they accept this notion that City Hall can be a place where all these different groups participate, that liberals will be quite willing to embrace them, will be quite willing to sort of have them join into their their coalition. Uh, And a lot of unions and a lot of things, it took them a long time to figure that out. Uh, You start seeing it occur more during the 1980s, particularly around community policing. Uh, but in the 19, but the San Francisco union is figuring out in the late sixties and early, well, by the early 1970s. And, um, so that by the end of the book, uh, you have this pretty strong, well, that, that, that police are part of, uh, on a contingent basis, part of this liberal coalition that, that, that liberals see police as, as not a group that's a threat to democracy, but as a group that can actually encourage and promote democracy because of their willingness to, to, to accept it in City Hall, uh, even though police are, are uh, not necessarily accepting these principles out on the street. Um, I had one other question that I wanted to ask you about some of your arguments that I don't really have a great transition into. Um, but I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about the role of localism, um, particularly towards the end and how it's sort of fitting into um, these larger debates about democracy and control and obviously policing as well. Right, right. So, so, so you know, towards the end of the book in San Francisco and then other cities as well, um, these young white collar people, um, they're, they're beginning to take power. Their coalitions are beginning to win elections. Um, and, but there's, and they're sort of unified around this idea that, that pluralism is good, that, that we should have a politics that accepts cultural and sexual and racial pluralism. Um, but when they achieve power, uh, fissures begin to break up because then the question suddenly becomes, well, how do you promote pluralism? Um, and where should that pluralism occur? Where should we have pluralist debate? Um, people like Aliotto, as I hinted at earlier, are very much, they believe democracy should be centralized, right? That, that, that democracy should occur in city hall. And that ultimately, you know, the mayor should be the voice of whatever the, you know, the, the, the this centralized debate produces, uh, whatever determination it produces. But 
during the late 60s and then certainly through the 70s and 80s, you have this counter movement amongst other liberals. Um, these are liberals who, who also believe, who also promote pluralism, but they argue that that pluralism, that democracy uh, is best fostered in the neighborhoods, um, out on the street or in the sidewalk or, you know, and that democracy should be decentralized. Uh, and you start seeing that politics uh, appear in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury. Uh, but it's a politics that's also occurring, as other authors have talked about, in, you know, Brooklyn's, uh, in Brooklyn and, and uh, uh, well, throughout, throughout the country, there, you start seeing these pockets, these neighborhoods. And often these, the, the liberals in these neighborhoods, they're often young professionals. They're often working in the downtown uh, but they don't want a democracy organized around City Hall. They want it organized around the neighborhood. Um, and they, and, and this, this becomes a, important, of course, because then it's how does one reform the police? Uh, for Al Yoto, re police reform should be uh, based on building up centralized policing uh, mechanisms like the tax squad. The tax squad will serve City Hall and will, and will thus be democratic. Uh, the localists in the Haight-Ashbury have the completely opposite uh, notion. They, they want policing not to be centralized, but entirely decentralized. They want to be able to interact with their friendly beat cop uh, with whom they will cooperatively uh, uh, solve problems in their neighborhoods. They want, Alioto wants to eliminate district stations and sort of move all of policing sort of into one or, you know, a handful of, of centralized uh, police buildings. Uh, localists want the opposite. They want more district stations, more sort of community outposts uh, where they can, um, again, cooperatively work with police that they know on a day-to-day -day basis to solve problems. And this this sort of this ties into a couple of ideas I've already talked about, uh, namely that police begin to recognize uh, that they can play these two groups off of one another. Uh, that when it suits them, uh, they can ally themselves with uh, people like Alioto, who want centralized policing, and they can support those measures. Uh, and when it suits them, they can turn around and begin allying themselves with localists. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of this story that I described, you have both, uh, you have, you have police on the one hand getting tax squads like which they want, uh, but also protecting, uh, their district stations, which they want. And this is sort of getting back to that point that I said earlier, where, uh, with all these different groups kind of trying to uh, imprint their values on the police department, the police department is able to grow uh, and able to sort of buttress itself um, in different conditions, finding different groups to sort of support its, um, support, support its, its own institutional goals. Um, yeah. Does that begin to answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. So these questions and, and when your book leaves off, of course, these things aren't, entirely resolved. These are still questions that are with us today. And your book is incredibly relevant to lots of current political debates. So I was wondering if you might talk just a little bit about what you see as a couple of important 
takeaways or um, ways we might consider some of the insights of your book in thinking about present day policing and debates about policing and some of the politics surrounding um, whether it be localism or use of police force or police community right. relationships or even uh, obviously lots in the news to, uh, at the moment about police relationships with African-American communities as well. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, so I think on the very sp specific thing of, 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 of you know, specific, uh, specific question of, of particular responses, the, the liberal debate over centralized versus decentralized reform that, that, that grows out of the late 60s is still very much with us now. And, and you see it uh, in various uh, democratic responses to um, what, you know, the, the, the protests of, of Black Lives Matter and the other, uh, other protests where, you know, liberals on the one hand, some liberals are arguing for community policing, some are arguing, which is a decentralized method. Others are arguing for more professionalization and centralization, especially through body cameras. So that, that fissure <laughs> uh, exists with us today. But I, I would just say more generally, uh, the way that my book relates to, to the current moment, you know, by the, by the end of my book, you know, so this great disruption of the 50s and 60s is now coming to a conclusion, right? And you have a new set of principles and relationships that have, that, that police have, have developed to legitimize themselves. And you can really only understand the massive growth of the police department of policing in the seventies and eighties, what, you know, a lot of historians are now, you know, associating with the rise of the carceral state, the, the terms in which the carceral, the, the so-called carceral state, and I don't say so-called dismissively, but uh, the, the terms that, that folks are using, the, 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 the terms in which the carceral state is rising in the seventies and eighties, uh, are established in the story of the 50s and 60s. So I'll explain mm -hmm. what I mean. Um, for instance, you, you, in the old system, in the 1950s, you had just a run-of-the-mill, interchangeable beat police officer who was politically voiceless uh, and had access to very broad status-based charges. And you could sort of rely on that officer to sort of march into any situation that bothered you um, or not, well, not rely, but it, it, there was a system in which cities were relying on these police officers to sort of march into any situation that they felt like uh, and, and, and uh, creating, you know, the order that, as they saw fit. And this was a city, system that, that had worked for a lot of cities, but by the late sixties and early seventies, that's not, the, the, that that policy that program is no longer tolerated, and now police have to abide by harm principle. Uh, by they have to abide by the harm principle. They have to be professionalized. Uh, there's all these sort of benchmarks that liberals are looking for, and so you start getting a profusion of specialized units, um, and that that 
that have sort of this patina of, of professionalism to them um, because they are run out of the hall of justice or they you know wear plain clothes and have been trained in some way. Uh, and you also have a new in, in order for police now to sort of police schools and police uh, public housing projects and police all these other institutions, uh, they now need to be uh, liberals begin to integrate them into their policymaking practices so that police can sort the harm from the harmless from the harmful um, so that they can only target so-called, you know, harmful youth. Uh, so in the schools in LA, for instance, uh, school district begins bringing police in. Um, whereas in the past, police would have just simply arrested whoever they wanted, sort of would have harassed whoever they wanted. Now there needs to be a policy and a program in which there's sort of this sorting occurring. Police are involved in with school officials, you know, diverting so-called harmful students in one or at-risk students in one direction and, and harmless students in another. Uh, so all of this professionalization, all of this integration um, geared towards sorting harmless and harmful people uh, alongside a newly politicized police force, or a new, uh, yeah, politicized uh, a police force that that now advocates for itself, all this creates uh, a much more expensive system. Um, and you see budgets in the 1970s and 80s balloon, um, and and a much more complex and. Uh, uh, just massive uh, policing apparatus grows and it grows because it has to, right? It has to sort of follow these principles that have been established in the fifties and sixties. So that's sort of in the broadest terms, why I see this, this book is sort of related to uh, how I see it related to this current moment. We're still living in the era. We still um, discuss crime and harm terms. We still discuss policing in, in terms of professionalization. And that's all a legacy of the late 60s, uh, as is the size and scope of our police system. Okay. So I have one more question before uh, we wrap up talking about your book. Um, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning that you did a lot of interviews. And one of the things that has... Um, I think it's fair to say at least, kept historians from doing work on policing in the past is that police records are are hard to look at and his, they're hard to find and historical uh, police records are often not around. So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about the experience of doing oral histories for this book and also just more generally how you're able to really get at some of these thorny issues that are hard to research in the archive. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, because I did so much of this. Well, I, th- I mean, I think part of it was that I lived in the area and right. I could just, it, it was back. A lot of this research was back in the era of phone books still. Right. Um, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. It wasn't that long ago. Right. Um, I could just cold call people. Um, yeah. Um, Were they happy to talk to you or did you? Well, it depended. I mean, I, I think, and are we talking about police in particular here? Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, the police were interesting. I, I think um, the, the, uh, the fact that um, 
really what you needed was you needed one, you needed a reference. Mm -hmm. And I found that normally if I had one reference from a police officer that other officers would speak to me. Um, And it was interesting how that worked. It was not always, uh, it didn't necessarily have to be a police officer that they liked. Um, But simply a, a police officer and then that would they would ex, uh, sort of, you know, normally take my request. So the, the, the main chain that I followed in terms of finding police officers was that, uh, and it was a strange one. I was interviewing a, uh, a, an African-American uh, columnist uh, for a black newspaper in San Francisco. And during the late seventies, San Francisco had this sort of very strange political tradition in which uh, white liberal politicians would take on what they referred to as uh, black godparents. Um, and they would have a, a, a god, someone they called a godfather or a godmother. Uh, and so by chance, I learned that this uh, journalist was the godfather to a former police chief of San Francisco, a guy named Dick Hongisto, who's since passed away. Uh, and so that was how I got uh, Hongisto's name uh, and phone number. And then Hongisto was a real, he was quite liberal. I mean, in particular in, in comparison to the rest of the police department. Um, so he, but he had everybody, he had a lot of names for me, and a lot of phone numbers. And these were people who really didn't like Hongisto personally, but once they had heard that he had vouched for me, uh, they were willing to talk. Um, and of course I had the union angle. So, um, you know, and that was where most of our interview focused usually. Um, and I didn't ask, I, and I, to be honest, wasn't really that interested in finding out if they remembered a a particular event from 60 years ago. Uh, mostly I was interested in just how the police department worked, um, how orders and how, you know, were how direction was given, how power was distributed, uh, and you know how what day-to-day policing looked like, um, and so those were sort of more innocuous topics. Um, and you know, I'm a white male and dressed conservatively, so I think that uh, it's impossible to say that that didn't have an effect too on my on my interactions with them. Um, yeah, uh, but I. I, I found I, police officers. I found actually pretty easy to interview. They they had a career of talking to you know either in court or to journalists. Um, so they were used to talking about these sorts of issues. Um, and as the scholar, it was up to me to kind of think about what they were telling me and to think about it critically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that that was that was why. And I. I and I would also say I, I'm not sure if it will be as easy for. I, I was studying a lot of this when um, police reform wasn't really in, wasn't such a such in the public eye. Um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if police would be more reticent now or not. I, I, it's hard for me to say. I, uh, but during my period, there wasn't. I wasn't. There was no Black Lives Matter movement in in the background of me doing my research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. 
So thanks for spending lots of time talking to us. Um, I do have one last kind of traditional question, which is what are you working on now? Uh, so I'm actually doing, I, you know, I don't know if it's a book or an article or a series of articles, but I'm, I'm doing a little bit more work on policing. Um, I'm looking at, I'm sort of going to the, I'm going to the 1980s and early 90s, and I'm sort of broadly still interested in the relationship between liberals and police. And I'm looking at, so three cities, Houston, Philadelphia, and Portland, where, um, all of which had democratic administrations uh, during this period, all of which um, were very different in terms of their economies and um, sort of demographic makeup, uh, and all of which turned to community policing at roughly the same time. Uh, and these cities then became models and the police chiefs that were heading these cities sort of then branched out to other bigger cities and, and, and to the national level. Um, and I'm interested, you know, I think I th one, one of the things that I want to do with this project is during the 80s, we tend to talk about, we, once we start in the 70s, we sort of just talk about the growth of carceral state, just sort of constant terms. But there are successive, you know, what I was saying up front, challenges to, um, to the police and to police legitimacy. Uh, and what's sort of been lost from the record is how much of a challenge police faced in the, during the early 80s uh, as city government, city budgets began to really atrophy. They, there was, during the, through the early and mid 80s, there was a big cutback in police in many cities. Uh, and it's an era that we often think of as you know, this law and order era. But police, police were, were, police budgets were being slashed. Number of police officers were, was declining. And um, and the drug war wasn't really resolving that problem in many cities. Um, but what I'm finding is that community policing was uh, and that politicians were using community policing uh, in two in two ways. One, to sort of draw together a huge range of constituencies who wouldn't normally sort of uh, who all sort of saw potential in community policing, but had very different political philosophies and very different social and economic backgrounds. Uh, and then from the policing perspective, it was through community policing that you get this sort of recapitalization of police departments and, and in, in particular sort of a, a buildup of the number of police themselves. Uh, and all of my story is occurring before the 94 crime bill, uh, which is frequently cited as um, the and not inappropriately so, but as, a, as an important moment where, where the federal government is, is, is coming in and sort of uh, trying to make good on Clinton's promise to uh, put 100,000 new you know, police back on the street. Um, my point is that this, that this politics wasn't sort of this and this policy wasn't being dropped down from the White House that actually that there was 15 years of, of political activism um, in cities that were leading towards that moment. Um, so that's, that's my research at the moment. Well, that sounds great. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your time.